Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And with that, we have read and heard God's holy word. And you may be seated. If you're looking in your bulletin, you will not find an outline for today's lesson, uh, partly because my leg is feeling so well, I'm doing more things. And I just see, it's either bad time management or laziness, take your pick. Uh, sometimes I just have to lay down and lift up my leg and let it work. But I did give you an outline here, which if you cannot see in the back, there are still seats up front. I'm beginning to notice you all are finding your own seats here. You have picked out your little corner in which to sit, and every Sunday you come and you sit in those seats. I think what we need is a mix-up Sunday. You're not allowed to sit near where you normally sit. So you get a whole different view of what goes on, right? Today, we are going to talk about the returning Christ, which is Lord. No, my wife's going, no, no, won't happen. Didn't happen in any of the other churches I tried it. Probably won't happen here. <laughs> they did it one Sunday, and the next Sunday, back to their own place. <laughs> Just creatures of habit. We're in the Heidelberg Catechism. We're in the section of the Apostles' Creed that deals with the, uh, the, deals with the Son of God, Christ Jesus. We have looked at his humiliation, that is, when he left the glory of heaven, from incarnation all the way to, his, to the grave, and we've started to look at, and we'll finish looking at today, his exaltation from his resurrection to his return. If you, turn, if you have your book and turn to page 55, this book delineates the Lord's Day in a different way than a lot of the other copies of the Heidelberg Catechism I have. So we're going to look at question 50, 51, and question 52, which begins on page 55 of your book. And basically what we're going to look at is the reigning Christ, his preparation, his provisions, and his parousia. Three Ps, so that I can remember, my, my little brain can remember those kind of things. So, question 50, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Because Christ ascended into heaven for this end, that he might there appear as the head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. 51. What does this glory of Christ our head profit us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Then, by that, by that, that by his power 
He defends and preserves us against all enemies. And then question 52, what comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? Answer that in all my sorrows and persecutions, I with uplifted head look for the very one who offered himself for me to the judgment of God and removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall take me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. I I would be honest with you, one of the reasons why I may not have gotten the outline done is that there's so, so much material, I couldn't figure out what to add and what to subtract. In fact... This Lord's Day, and especially the question 52, is worthy of a Sunday school class all of its own for about three years to talk about the parousia or the reappearance of the Lord Jesus. Uh, If you came thinking that's what we're going to do, you're mistaken. Won't be the first time, not the last time. So we just are not going to be able to cover all that, although I wish we could because it's so important into our our life. Let's, uh, we're going to take a look at the first one, Christ's preparation. It says he is seated at the right hand of God. And by that, we mean he is in his session. Now, for we who are Presbyterian, session is a common word. You uh, may have known the word by you have a session with a counselor or you have a session with a group of people. It's a word that comes from the Latin word to sit. And when the, in Presbyterians, when the elders meet, they sit and deliberate and they are the session, the sitters. Although some of them get up and walk around and are really irate. But that's a different question. <laughs> You are here as a session. You are sitting. And we call that when Jesus went up to heaven, he ascended, he went into his session. He sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which, which is a metaphor. God is a spirit. The Father is a spirit. He has no body. And therefore, he has no right hand, no left hand. And so when Christ came to sit at the right hand of the Father, it basically means he became the chief of staff. He was the second in command. He took his rightful place as ruler of the church and of the universe, and he oversees all that goes on. Subject to the Father, which is from 1 Corinthians 15, and if you'll turn with me to that. 15 and 28. Oh, let's go back now. Let's go back to 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruit, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him and that, that God may be all in all. Christ is in, under subjection to the Father, but he is a ruler of all things. And the, the catechism tells us he is a ruler of the universal church. It's the only way he could do it. You know, in his earthly ministry, he walked around with his disciples, his followers, and he could only be in one place at one time. He couldn't be up in Samaria and down in Jerusalem. With his ascension, his humanity is in heaven, as we talked about last week, but his deity can be everywhere. And he can take care of a universal, a worldwide and age-long church. And that's what he does. It is subjected to him. It is subjected to him by his word, and therefore it's one of the reasons we ask you to stand to be reminding you that this is the very word of God, infallible, inerrant, that which trains, rebukes, reproves, and corrects you so that you may be adequately equipped to do all works. It is him speaking to us. He, he uh, also oversees and rules by his spirit who takes this word through individuals who study it and begins to apply it to his church as a whole and into, into individuals' lives. So when you read it and you remember you're hearing the word of God and something speaks to you of what you ought to do and ought not to do, it is the spirit of God who is doing that. It is Christ who is ruling you at that moment and saying, stop it or do it. Take your pick, whatever it is. And you are called to obey because he is Lord of all the universe. He rules his church. And he does it by elders. Those who are called by God, not because they're qualified, but simply because they're called. And he qualifies them to take the oversight of a, either a local congregation or in the case where you have uh, a, a company of congregations, all those congregations, to guide and direct them in their ministry. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it would do you well to listen to your elders, for they guide you, and they are accountable to you. Paul said that to Timothy. Uh, now, if you're not an elder, that, you, that may just fly right by. But if you are an elder, that's, that's scary material. I am accountable for what I teach. I'm accountable for my people. I'm accountable for everything. You could lose sleep at night, except you realize Christ is the ultimate shepherd. And he will even overcome our weaknesses and our foibles. But he rules his church 
In fact, somebody once said one of the chief proofs for the existence of God is the church. How in the world did it ever exist for 2,000 plus years with the kind of people that run it? It hasn't done well sometimes. It hasn't done great sometimes. But God continues through Christ by his word, spirit, and elders to rule the church. That's why you hold your elders in esteem. Not only because they have a deeper responsibility, but they are called by God to oversee you. So the next time you want to speak ill of an elder, go like this. And even Paul says, you, you do not bring a single accusation. You need two or three witnesses before you accuse them. If only Congress knew that. Rule, he also rules the universe. 1 Corinthians 15 says he's taking everything under subjection and he's bringing it to himself little by little by little. In the passage we looked at last week, Revelation 5, we saw the lamb who was slain, who called the Lion of Judah, take the scroll that had the history of the world and he was eligible to open it. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And each paragraph section, he opens a second seal, a third seal, and down the way. Which is another way of saying he is able to unravel history. And now, that's counter to our thinking in the age, and you may have picked up from the philosophy and thinking. When you read or hear the news Whenever you listen to the news, do you ever hear, well, Jesus is reigning, and this is happening because he wants it to happen. No, you don't. You think as well as the politicians, it's the businesses, it's our educators, it's our scientists, it's whatever uh, area of life is prominent at that moment. No. Behind it all is Jesus Christ, and he does it through his people. Remember from last week, I'm sure you do. Why do I have to say something like that? Revelation 12, verse 11. And they, that is the people of God, have conquered him, the enemy of God, by the blood of land and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered one by Christ, but also their testimony. It's the two in conjunction. And I think I mentioned last week, we like to think it's only by Christ. No, we have a part to play in the ruling of the universe. In fact, in the confession, question 50, that he might appear as head of the church by whom the Father governs all things. Father governs through the Son. But by his church, the Father governs all things. We now take a look at the deplorable condition of our land. And as we take a look at it, we kind of bemoan what has taken place. You know why it's the way it is? It's because the church has fallen down on its responsibility. 
over the ages, over the decades, the church has either said, I'm not going to get involved. I'm a Jesus follower. I'm going to heaven. What do I care about this world? And they have backed off. Or they've been lazy. Oh, I'd rather see Monk and the new episode of Last Man Standing than go out and do what I have to do. Or they are too tired, too busy doing their own thing. And they have not, the church has not conquered the philosophies of this world that are out there, that are bemoaning. Heaven stood up for a, a heterosexual marriage. Heaven stood up against abortion. Heaven stood up against the ills of our society. Heaven stood up against the incivility that we see taking place, not only on grand scales, but just between individuals. Uh, we have two dangers here. There's a danger of, of niceness, that we want to be so nice that we just do or just go along or just kind of oversee. And there is a danger of niceness. That we are not nice ourselves. We say things about other people that we shouldn't say. Again, the, uh, the normal way in which we, we ought to act when we think about something like that. Well, shut my mouth. Comes from my southern aunt. Well, shut my mouth. You see, God gives us the privilege and the responsibility. Imagine that. The privilege we have to reign with Christ in this world. Paul says one day we are going to judge angels. Now, one angel can kill 180,000 men. But we're going to be able to judge the angels. What a privilege that is. What a privilege is we have to oversee through God's work. What? By prayer. The one, number one responsibility of a Christian in a church is prayer. Because by prayer we align ourselves with God. And he in his wisdom has said, as you pray, so I will do. Now, it's not as if he, he is necessity, in, of necessity doing that. It is a, that's the way he has programmed it. We need to be people of prayer. Unfortunately, in our day and age, the average prayer life of a Christian every day is about three minutes. And it's usually gimme, 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 gimme. Instead of a longer time. We do it by the testimony of the word. We spread the word. We stand up to those who are misusing or who are against the word. And we say, no, 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 no. This is what God has told us. And we have a very reliable source. And we know why it's a reliable source. And we say, this is what God has said. Do it. Or it is a testimony of what God has done in our lives. You imagine the beauty of what it is to say, I was once this, but now I'm this. And it's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm powerful. It's not because I have anything in myself. It's what God in Christ has done to me through his word and spirit. See. And if you 
want to see a negative example, read your Old Testament and read the prophets, major and minor. All prophets are those who bring him back to the word of God. And over and over again, the prophets say, God has called you to be his people, to do these things. God has called you to obey him, and you have not. And therefore, you're getting out of the land. You're going into exile. Seventy years away from the land. Why? Because you didn't obey the God of the universe. Now you could think, I wonder if God's doing that through the church in America today. Seventy years. If it started in 1950, we're getting close to the return. If it started in 70, some of us may not be around by the time it happens. But (laughs) that's what his seating is. He is ruling the church and the world for his own sake and for his own glory. Second of all, Christ's provisions, question 51. And this is, this uh, partly comes from Ephesians 4, verse 7, where Paul writing says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and women. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions of the world? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and he goes through that list right there. When he went up to heaven, he had promised one thing to his disciples. Well, more than one thing, but one thing that stands out. He says, I will send to you another counselor, a comforter, a paraclete, another advocate. The word other means one exactly like me. And so when he went, 10 days later, he sent that other paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who is at work in his church. How do you defend Peter, who 50 days earlier had allowed a 13-year-old girl to cowtail him twice and who called curses upon himself saying, I don't know the man. And yet 50 days later, well, maybe 53 days later, he is standing before thousands And he's standing before those who had murdered Christ and he preaches in Acts 2 a sermon that was devastating to them. This Christ whom you killed, God has raised to be his Messiah, his son. The only way you can do it is the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit. And that's a great gift the church has, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. When you became a Christian, the Spirit came into you. The third person who we'll get to study next week, again, to a limited degree, because we don't have time, but he came in you and he dwells within you. The power of God that created a universe dwells within you. And his presence is there. And he gives you everything you need. In fact, that's what Paul says in this 
passage. He says, this, he gives the Spirit, or Christ gives gifts, and he gives them by the Spirit. A variety of gifts. The scripture lists, enumerates some of them, but that's not all the gifts that there are. There, you know, God is such a magnificent God that he is able to give more gifts than we ever could understand. And some of the gifts he gives to us, many of them, some of them are supernatural. They only come from him. And some of the times to our, I think to our detriment, we look and say, that's a gift I want. I really want to be able to do that. Wouldn't it be fun to be able to put hands on people and see them healed? Yeah, it would be fun. But, you know, with, it, with that is the ability to, of pride, of ego. Look what I did. No, you didn't do a thing. You simply put your hands and prayed as the Spirit told you. But most of the gifts that he gives are mundane gifts. Administration. It's Stephen back there leading the work on this building. That's a gift that many of you probably don't have. And after the, after the Sunday school lesson, you go back and go, yeah, thank you, Steve. You use the gift that God has given to you. You do the same thing in, in witnessing. God has given those people, some people, ability to not only just be so friendly and so open, but to be able to take the word of God and apply it to a person's life. There's some mundane gifts, I think, that are, are probably the more important gifts. And yet he's given it to, to uh, the church. He's also given the Spirit's fruit. Spirit comes in and he produces a fruit, a singular. The word is singular in Ephesians. One fruit, nine parts. It's like the tangerine I had the other day. You take off the skin, it breaks into different segments. You pop them into your mouth and you go, oh, that was so sweet, that's sour. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes the fruit of the Spirit is sour because it goes against your very nature. However, you've been given the fruit of the Spirit, so that's how you live. And that's how you minister the gifts. That's how you show it's not me, it's the Spirit. He's also given us leaders. Back to the elders are his gifts to the church. And they are called to be under shepherds to the shepherd, but they are called the shepherd, and that's an awesome responsibility. Not only is he given gifts, but he also gives protection. John 5.28. And Jesus is talking to a group of people and they are questioning whether he is God. He comes to verse, and, and whether or not he is going to keep his people. He's talking about, I am the bread of life. Well, that's not the right verse. Stupid computer. Well, the only problem is garbage in, garbage out, right on the computer. Okay, not the right verse, so we won't we won't be looking at that one. One of the things he promised to his disciples in his uh, last talk with them the night before he died, he said, "You will be persecuted, but do not be afraid. I am with you." 
you will be persecuted. Paul said to Timothy, those who seek to live godly for Christ will be persecuted. It's not might or ought. The word is will. That happens. And yet God has said, and and the passage I'm thinking about is when Jesus said, nobody can snatch my people out of my hand. Nobody can snatch my sheep out of my father's hand. It's not that we hold on to Jesus, but he holds on to us. He puts his hand around us and he keeps us and watches over us and he is our protection. He defends us while we are under trials. He is the one who, in many of the martyrs of the church, they lost the argument, but they won God's presence. They would go to the stake and they would put the faggots of wood around them and they would light them. And they would, and as their body was burning, I can't think of anything more horrible than that. As their body was burning, they would cry out and they would sing. They would would preach from that uh, funeral pyre. And they would continue to say, thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to be a witness, which in the Greek is martyr. Martyr. Church Reformation and the church has always been built upon those who are martyrs who have been defended in their own faith but also defended from others by Christ. Right now, over in the Middle East, ISIS and in North Africa, those who hate Christ and hate the church are trying to destroy it. They're beheading brothers and sisters in Christ. They are persecuting, they are raping their women, they are killing their children, they are doing despicable things. But those people do not renege on their faith. Though you may slay me, I will not renege, is that word. And they are being witnesses to the power. And you know what's happening? In Iran, the church is growing by leaps and bounds because those people look at those martyrs and they said, I wouldn't do that for my faith, my religion. Man, I'd get out of there as fast as possible. But they say, why? And they are baptizing more Christians in Iran than I think we're baptizing here in America. Isn't that amazing? In a country we think that is so... Uh, against Christianity. But you see, that's Christ doing his work. Protecting his people. Protecting them through tribulations and all else that takes place. And finally, question 52 talks about Christ's parousia. That is his appearance. That's what the word parousia means. He promised it to us. John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a house for you. And when, I, when I'm finished, I will come and bring you to that house. Rough translation. That's the gist of what the, the verse says. He will come back and bring us to himself. 
And as well, I think it was Keith Green said, if it took seven, six days for God to create this universe, think about what he's been doing for 2,000 years. It's glorious. He also, we also saw it with his ascension when the angels came and looked at the disciples and said, this same Jesus who you saw ascend in the clouds will come back in a similar manner. He is returning. He is appearing. He will come as a judge. Matthew 25, you can read 31 on, is a parable of the sheep and the goats where the sheep are on one side, the goats are on the other. And they are judged as to their fidelity to their call for Christ. When I was in jail, you came and visited me. You fed me. You clothed me. You watered me. When, when, when did we do that, Lord? Whenever did we do that? He says, if you did it to the least of one of mine, you did it to me. When I was in jail, you didn't come. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. Well, come on, Lord. When did we not do that? When you didn't do it to the least of my brothers. And one will go to one section and one will go to another. There's a pure separation. He comes as judge to show the true alliance and to cast people into their final home. This is the part of, the, of his appearing we don't always like. Because we know what that final home is going to be like for the goats. It's a place that is eternal, everlasting, no escape. It's a place that is given the image of fire, of burning, of being eaten by worms, of horrible pain. And the pain is that they are in the presence of God without his common grace. And they see him for who he is and they see themselves for who they are. And it just drives them nuts. It drives them in great pain. He says, for those who don't know Christ, that is their final outcome. I think I've said this before, a long time ago, so you forgot it. Go to the mall. Look at the people who are walking around the mall. Some happy, some having fun, some sad, some depressed, some trying to figure out what they want to do. And each one of them ends up in one of two places. And we have the message that they need to hear. Again, we're back to our privilege to say it and the responsibility to tell them what's coming up. Again, it's back to where the church has truncated, twisted, failed to, to proclaim the true gospel. And we live in a culture for whom hell is simply a joke. Or it doesn't fit into their philosophy of life. And therefore, because I don't believe it, there is no hell. Well, that's not going to help. It is a reality. And when Jesus comes back, part of the segment of humanity from around, from the fullness of time, will be ushered into that place. The other good side is that those who are followers of his will be ushered into eternal glory and joy. And it will be wonderful.
Not because it's streets of gold. Not because it's a beautiful city with a river coming down, Revelation 21 and 22, where trees grow on the other side and there's healing and there's strength. Not because it is a place that is so absolutely beautiful, it's indescribable. And that's what we sometimes focus. I can't wait till I walk on those streets of gold. Because there is someone there who's far more joyous and glorious than the streets of gold. What makes heaven heaven is the triune God. That's what we'll be looking at. Sometimes we talk about, oh, I'm going to see my uncle. I'm going to see my, I'm going to see somebody. He says, yeah, you will, but that's not what is important. You look in the, the uh, glass, the mirror darkly, then you will see him face to face. You will have that, that vision of the fullness of who he is as much as a human being can understand that. And what a beautiful, glorious day that will be. And that's, that's the wonder that Christ is bringing to us. And it comes as through his parousia. What is this parousia? Well, it's like his incarnation. It's coming, but it's the second time. How is it described? Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. I know, ah, there it is. I knew it was in here. I saw it. 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a metaphor for death, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That was, that's Presbyterians. The dead in Christ will rise first. I just want you to know that. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's that phrase, caught up. I was watching some football yesterday. And periodically they pan the state, the, uh, the seats and the fans. Those were some people who were caught up in the game. When somebody, their opposing team scored, they went, oh, I'm saying, come on, it's only a game. And the others were going, yes, they were, they were caught up in the game. That's partly what that word means. But that, this word caught up is a metaphorical word. It's a picture word. It's a picture of a conquering general coming back to his city. And as he comes back, trumpets blare. And he sends 
some of his people into the city to say, we have won the battle. The general is coming. Come on out. And everybody in the city comes out to where the general is. And then as soon as they get there, here's, here's the general. And here's all the soldiers. And here's all the town people coming. As soon as they get to see the general, they do a U-turn and go back to the, to the city in order to celebrate the victory. They don't stay outside the city and wait. They are excited because where is the feast going to be held? In the town hall, in the city, in the plaza. That is the image of that caught up. That does a whole lot to help you not follow a particular way of looking at the perusia of, the, of, of uh, Christ. When Christ comes back, archangels will have a voice. There'll be a sound of trumpet, which is a way of, again, an Old Testament image of warning, but also of alerting people to something wonderful has happened. And he will come with all those who have died before. Those who have not died will be brought to, and they will all come back into the city for the victory, for the time of victory. That will be glorious. And the glorious will not be because the table is filled with food and because they won the victory. It will be because you are in the presence of the great general who has conquered all things. That's his return in a nutshell. And if you remember that, you will remember and you will think, be able to think about how he's coming back and what that does, that does mean. He collects his people and their joy is to be in his presence. Well, those are the three questions. We are going to end where we began with a passage from Philippians, which is not only our advice, but God's word to us. Where he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. There's you can tell the enemy. The enemy has a mind that's set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Lord's Day 19 reminds us Christ is in control of everything and he is coming back. And we will be with him. And the end will be so glorious, we will not be able to do anything but give him praise above all else because he is the one who is in session, sits at the right hand of God, planning, procuring, mapping out, working out everything that he has bought for our salvation. Everything, not only for us individually, but the church as a whole. With that, we end the exaltation of Christ at least in teaching about it, you always will be exalting Christ, I hope. And next week we take a look at the third section of the 
the uh, creed on the Holy Spirit, which is not simply the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, which is all impacted in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Well, through Paul, Lord, you have said that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to eagerly await his coming. And in awaiting it to be the people who take the privilege and the responsibility that he has given to us and exercise it daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. May that be true for this congregation that we may not flag or that we may not be detoured on what you have called us to be and to do, but you would grant us the gifts and the fruit to accomplish so that the kingdom would expand, Christ would subdue individuals and other things through us, all to his glory and honor. And may we be ready on the day that we either face him at death or he comes for us to see him and to be with him and to give to him the joy and the glory that he alone deserves. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen.